This message is brought to you by IOM America and the International Fellowship of Exchange Life. Hi, my name is Steve Finney and I am your ministry host. We hope that the Lord blesses you today as you listen to our podcast. This morning's message is entitled, Leaders Who Embrace the Author. And of course, when we see the word author is, hopefully, there's a word that comes to mind. It's the number one word that comes from this word, and that is authority, authorship, which is authority. It's the one who writes the book. Well, the book being the word of God, the word of God being God, and Jesus came as the word so that we could behold his glory. The glory of the only, the only Son of God, the Father. So we need to take a very special look at what it really means for leaders, whether you're heads of your home or whether you're a mommy or whether you are heading up a ministry, leaders who embrace the author. DK and I were talking this morning before church and we were just baffled by, even though we have a little bit of spiritual logic as to why the problem exists, but we were just kind of blown away and baffled by the idea of why the church itself is so insultive of discipleship. The fact that one of our workers that we were talking to you about during our prayer time uh, is under attack because he is learning the uh, skills of discipleship. And they are saying that he's getting into this Jesus thing a little bit too much. There's something about when you start moving the body of Christ into being trained practically in discipleship that the enemy just breaks out and has a heyday whether it's from equipment to people's lives. It's just something that uh, the enemy does not like, obviously. So let's talk about the uh, key principles here of authorship. So in order for the discipleship process to work effectively, the disciple or the and the disciple the disciple and the discipler must accept and embrace the original structure of authority. The author, who has also been given one of the names as counselor, doing the work in and through the primary and secondary discipler. The big difference between the exchange life and the world or the field of Christian counseling is simply this. It's the counselor in the indwelt believer that is actually doing the work of counseling in and through the indwelt believer. So that leaves us with a, a question right off the bat, and that is the discipler or counselor that you're seeing are they truly indwelt by the Holy Spirit? And if you say, well, I don't know. You might want to interview your counselor. 
You might want to interview your pastor. Why are you sitting under the pastoralship of a pastor who is not a Christian by the indwelling life of Christ? And I know there's got to be someone out there thinking right now, how dare you say that my pastor is not a Christian? Well, he is. Or she is. If they say that I am a follower of Jesus Christ. But if they do not have the ability to explain to you what it means to have the indwelling life of Christ in you, they are probably not real indwelled Christians. The way you find out of someone, a leader that you're going to literally entrust your life to, the way you find out if they understand what it means to be an indwelled believer is to have them explain it to you. Could you just share with me if I brought my husband or my brother or my sister to you, could you just please explain to me how you're going to lead them to Christ? And have them explain to you if they try to throw it off as, well, that's so elementary. What do you, I'm not going to answer that silly question. Take a hike now, soon, quickly. You see, if a man or woman cannot explain the indwelling life of Christ, do not entrust your life to them. If your pastor cannot explain the indwelling life of Jesus Christ, it would be wise to leave and get to a fellowship where the pastor is able to explain to you what it really means to have the indwelling life of Jesus Christ. This is Christianity 101. The reason why we are in a mess today of in and of the church is because the leadership of the church is simply not able to explain to you what it means to have the life of Christ doing the work in and through you. So here's what happens. We, put, we, we pass around an offering plate every Sunday. And we put just enough guilt onto that process that people are obligated to put some money in that plate. How many of you, when you go to the doctor and you pay $75 for that visit, and at the end, the doctor says to you, well, you have a common cold, just get by a box of Kleenex and you'll be fine. No, you want that doctor to, to recommend drugs to you. Because you paid that, dues. That's exactly what happens in the church. The people put their money in the offering plate, and the people who give their money are not giving out of, don't let the left hand know the right hand is giving. They are giving their money with, with a request, unspoken request, I might add, a request that you, the church leader, and your team, you do the discipleship of the people, because we're paying for that. We bring our money here every week, and we expect our money to pay for these types of services. That's what's happened to our church. Meanwhile, the people come every Sunday, and they sit in the pews, they fill up these pews, 
and they get blessed. They lift their hands in worship. They'll bounce around a little bit, all excited about Jesus Christ. Turn around and walk outside of that tent or that building, and they will continue to do what they do every single day of their lives until next Sunday where they can come and be blessed. The morning services are for one reason alone. It is to gather the assembly together to have them raise up their hands before God and glorify God, worship together, thank God together for how God used them through the week. And then to leave them with an equipping message so that they may go out and further advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's our Hebrew for author. I'm going to need uh, four kids, Hebrew kids, to come and help us with this. Okay. Come. No. I know which one you're, you're hunting for. <laughs> Gracie, I got one more. Okay, so I need to have, uh, who has the water? Mem, I need to have you stand over by the speaker. And then Cowboy, I think you have, yep. You hold yours up there. And then, uh, see your cough. All right, and then Dalet. So here's what we have. We have Mem, which means water, basically. That's the English, but the original is liquid, massive, or chaos. Okay, so that's what Marlamy stands for this morning. And then Cowboy is Hey, which is behold, or to reveal, and it's a it's a uh, patriarch holding his hands up before the Lord, going basically, behold, you are the living God. And then we have kaf, which is the actual palm of the hand. The achod narakaf means a name written in the palm of God's hand. Every single one of your names, if you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, your name is carved on the palm of God's hand. And that's the original picture that comes from. And then Dilet is a doorway. It also could mean pathway. But it's basically, if you could picture what we talked about last week, it's basically walking through the gate, the doorway to the temple of the great reveal, which is praising God. The temple, the holy of holies. Okay, thank you guys for helping. Now, let's put all of this together. We have Mem, He, Kaf, and Delet. And when we put all of these together in its proper order, we have author means to wash by revealing the open 
pathway. Someone please tell me what the New Testament says about what a man is supposed to do with his wife. Wash her with the word. And here we are seeing in the Old Testament the original language for mankind. Author is to wash. The whole goal of the author is to wash. Authorship, authority. Now you have structure in which you walk the person through the very authority structure that we have in the church in the world today is for the purpose of leading people to a washing. Where does the term baptize come from? Washing. It's the outward symbol of taking them down and bringing them up and that water washing them and washing the sins away. The author's primary responsibility is to wash the person, lead them to a washing, lead them to the author and perfecter of our faith by revealing the pathway that is just wide open. How many had to pay for a ticket to become in Christ. Is there anyone here that actually had to pay for it? I paid $669,000 for mine. Well, I mean I'm going to hell. There is no payment. That was the whole point of the rich man, remember? He's like, well, hey, whatever, whatever it'll take. What, what, what's the cost here? And of course, Jesus looked right through that and brought this man, led this man to the point of the washing and the rich young ruler basically said, yes, I'm in. I will sell all of my valuables to have this. Is that what he said? No. So it boils down to a price. You would think that Jesus was putting an emphasis on a price of the rich man who could pay the price. But he wanted to actually show the rich young ruler that he was not willing to pay the price himself for eternal life. But Jesus was willing to pay. So the only price tag for eternal life is surrender and brokenness. If you even want to call that a price. So remember, here's what Hebrews 13, 7 and 8 says. Remember those who lead you, who spoke the word of God to you, and consider the result of their conduct. Imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. Now, I want to remind you the best way, at least the way I do my biblical studies for these sermons, is when I come upon the verse that God is wanting me to build upon, I lay out the foundation of where I'm going to kind of teach and preach on it. And then when I get to the verses, I write the doctrines backwards. Remember? 
so I can understand how the enemy is going to attack this situation, this truth. And here's what we have. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So to change that and to reverse that and to look at it backwards, we could say that Jesus Christ and Christianity needs to be kept up to date to and with the culture. That is the statement of Rob Bell, who is one of the key leaders in the emergent church, is that Christianity needs to be revised. It needs to be updated. It needs to be upgraded. It needs to be put in our modern culture. Do you see what Satan does? He always works backwards. Then when we look at the term, remember the leaders who spoke to you, who washed you with the word of God. Well, what's opposite of that? Don't, don't consider your leaders important, whether they washed you with the word or not. These are sinful men who were falling around you by the droves. Don't, don't even give it a second thought. What's our culture today? Do you see this? The original design is God saying, hey, let's get one thing straight here. Remember your leaders. Remember those who have been washing you with the word, the purity of the word, the, the succinct absoluteness of the word of God. And you know, don't, don't imitate their conduct. Imitate their faith. You do see that, right? But what happens in cultish type of church structures is that these people are imitating the conduct of their leaders. Where does it say that? It's their faith. Here's our goal. First of all, our goal is to develop leaders and disciples of Jesus Christ into more passionate, skilled, effective exchange life workers. Equipping learners to teach others what they have learned. This cannot be done unless each embrace the issue of God-ordained authority. Have you heard by the hearing of your own ears. Stay with me on this. Have you heard by the hearing of your own ears in your own community someone telling you that the word of God is not the authentic, authoritative words of God? Have you heard this? By your own ears. In this little community? And in your community over there? And... Not with those words. Not with those exact words. Okay, number two. I just got a rumor passed on to me this morning of what someone said to, about me, about my view of homosexual pastors. And some rejection attached to it. Why is that such a big issue? 
Because God said it was a big issue. And so forth and so on. You see, anytime we speak of the absoluteness, the authoritative, the pure, immovable doctrines of God, all of a sudden we start getting labeled things. But keep this in mind. Please, anyone who is listening, no matter what country you're from, no matter what church you're attending, please remember this. Anytime someone says something bad about you and this bad thing that they're saying about you is from pure doctrines, they've insulted the face of God and they will not get away with it. I promise you. What you do unto the least of these, my brethren, you do unto Jesus Christ. Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of man is recorded in the book of life. It will show up in front of them again, I can assure you. Second point, we as people of God have the responsibility to help meet the needs of Christ's disciples. And our society in particular has become so incredibly dependent on government to take care of our social welfare needs that we have a multi-gazillion dollar budget of taking care of the people in America through this department of social welfare that the church has literally kicked back. Why? I am going to share with you a simple principle again. Wherever you put your money your tax dollars are being taken from you just like the church takes your offering money on Sunday morning. If in your mind you have any direct connection that the church owes you quality discipleship because you're giving your money to them, then you are violating the number one principle of giving. And that's letting your right hand and your left hand know about the giving. Same thing in government and taxes. Jesus said, someone want to finish what he said about taxes? Rend to Caesar what is Caesar's. In other words, quit fighting and fussing and moaning about this. Just let it go. And then he got back to the point of ministry. No, that is not how we function. We use, because we give our tax dollars to the government's offering plate, we expect a perfect say in everything that's going on within Caesar's world. In other words, I pay to have you, the government, send me that food box. I pay you, the government, for you to send me clothing. I pay you, the government, to take care of me. What's happened? Here's what's happened. Our society, particularly the church, has developed a bad habit of being dependent on our government and church leadership, same thing to most people, to do the work of discipleship instead of individual church members who really are the church. I had someone recently ask me if I take insurance monies, and I said even if I could, I wouldn't. 
you want to pay for your biblical training with insurance money? What's that? I'll tell you exactly what it is. If you put your money in the insurance offering plate every month, you expect them to take care of you. I'm telling you folks, I don't care where you live or what your government's like, we have it backwards. The church is becoming lazier and lazier and lazier by the week. It's even affecting this little body. It affects another little body out there, another little body out there, and it goes throughout the entire world. Well, it's very easy to understand. Satan is rocking the church asleep through your wallet. You need to ask yourself a simple question. Where is my money going? Where your treasures are is where your heart is. And if you're giving money to the church, your money should not be paying for discipleship. That's your job. Your money that you're giving to the church should take care of the needs of those who preach the gospel. Your church that you're giving to the the money that you're giving to the church should take care of the church in making sure that the authoritative structure is in place to keep the gospel moving and so forth and so on. The work of service of discipleship is up to each individual member of the body of Christ. Next point. In spirit, in spite of this habit, many of the fellow members of the body of Christ still suffer with spiritual and physical poverty, despair by depending on the local church to meet their needs instead of individual body members of Christ. Now, can you imagine living like the book of Acts? They brought this issue up and Peter responded with a response that today would probably blow people away, certainly call Peter a cult member, leader. But Peter said, if someone in your fellowship is suffering and is in need, go in sell your you can say it your house and give the money to that brother what that is ridiculous that is absolutely ridiculous to have an economy like that where you would literally give the shirt off your back to someone who is shirtless So the whole system that we have going for the church today is backwards. There are certain countries that you could go to today and you would discover this system is working. The body of Christ doesn't depend upon their government. They are actually getting in there and working diligently to do the work themselves. Feeding their people, clothing their people, 
Instead, whoever it is that's feeding you, whoever it is that's clothing you, that's who you run to the next day. So if the body of Christ is feeding, the body of Christ is clothing, guess where that person's going to run to for their spiritual education, transformation? Church. And that's why in my presentation to the parliament in Uganda, Clinton was there three weeks before I was, and he gave the president and his administration $3.6 million to start a social welfare department. And I said to the prime minister, I said, this would be your absolute worst decision in the history of your country if you started a social welfare department. Make use of your churches. You give funding to your churches that they may care for their people so the people are running to the churches for their spiritual needs. Food, shirts, shoes, heart. Where your money is, is where your heart is. Whoever's feeding you, you're going to go back for shirts. Whoever's clothing you, you're going to go back for shoes. Whoever is helping you walk, you're going to go back to for training. <coughs> now we have men and women going through government-sponsored 12 steps, 14 steps, two-steppers, anything that they can throw at you to have your behavior changed because that's where your tax dollars go. It's a huge issue. And if you don't think it's not affecting the church of Jesus Christ, then you have some rethinking to do. So here's what we need to do. It's time that we actually join hands with other, not I, but Christ, exchange life workers throughout the entire world. <coughs> See, I am constantly hunting for writers and teachers and preachers and disciplers who understand it is the life of Christ in you. <coughs> doing the work through you. If I get responses from someone who are kind of interested in understanding Christ in you, but they're really pushing for more programs and more performances, I'll stay with them and hopefully in that discipleship relationship they'll be led into understanding how it really works. If the terminology of the exchange life is messing you up, don't use it. That was just simply a term that Hudson Taylor threw around to try to explain the great exchange. Of not I, but Christ. There was a true exchange that took place on the cross. You died, and he came alive. Then he placed this life in you that is not you. And the life that you're now supposed to live was supposed to be lived by his faith. So there was an exchange on the cross. You want to call it the abundant life? Call it the abundant life. You want to call it the, the life of the great exchange? Call it the life. Of, I don't care what you call it, but it is simply allowing and releasing the Holy Spirit and the life of Christ to do the work through you. 
Here's what to do. This cannot be accomplished unless we as the church leaders have the mindset of dwelling upon the truth, Jesus Christ, and knowledge, what comes from his mind, of the Holy Spirit from within. The indwelling mind of Christ, which is Philippians 2.2, and leaders need to be working together to accomplish uh, together to accomplishing mutual community and church goals through this Christ as life model. Now, when we look at the indwelling mind of Christ, you can't even use that terminology unless you truly, truly believe that there is another life that is stronger than your life that is actually living inside you. I mean, outside of that, you're going to have the philosophy that Jesus Christ needs to get at least two degrees, a bachelor's degree in anything from, from uh, the study of plants to, they don't really care what your bachelor's is in. But what they really do care about is that your master's degree is in theology or something that has to do with the church. Now, if you get that second degree, I want to ask you a question. Who are you really educating here? It's not a trick question. You're constantly advancing your education. Who are you really educating? Yourself. Does this go against the mind of Christ, who's already educated, who already has degrees of the Holy of Holies, if you want to call it that, is already perfect. Every thought and intention of his heart is absolutely perfect. Why are we rising to some mark in the church to try to equalize the playing field of Jesus Christ in you and your degrees? I find no scripture supporting this. In fact, I find scriptures that actually are saying God is in the process of dumbing us down so that we can not say this. Verse 5 of our passage this morning, For we never came with flattering speech. Please stay with me on this. I, I talk to people every single week who are attending communication classes to theological classes to whatever so that their speech can be handled in perfection of what is considered the standard of preaching and teaching. I have never had a single hour of training on teaching or preaching or voice inflections or anything else like that. We don't need it. When God grabs hold of a vocal cords and God grabs hold of a mind and God grabs hold of passionate workers, it all seems to come together for some reason. How many enjoyed listening to Joe Angel? We have a born preacher on our hands. He is at zero lessons yet. We need to keep it that way. 
You see, because God needs to grab a hold of a raw heart and raw skills and use those raw skills and passion to manifest the spirit that is in him or her. He's not done here. He goes on to say this, as you know, nor with pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we see glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. And that's the key. Asserting their authority to do what it is that God has asked them to do. These are the things that are blocking the church from functioning and following a crisis life model. Next point, we must tap into these individuals and ministries that have an experiential understanding of Christ in you, doing the work through you. As leaders, we need to continue to build on the proven work of the cross not hunt for new and, and, and unimproved ways uh, uh, to grow God's people through more programs. Most of the church leaders is privately funded. And this is the point that I was speaking of earlier. Your average, and this is more than average, believe me, your average thinking in the church today is that in order for the pastor to be paid a salary, he must carry a certain level of degrees that is deserving of the salary. So now the church is paying this man to do the multiplication of the gospel. He who does the pan is he who's in control. They start yanking this leader around, letting him preach certain things and not preaching other things. Then new doctrines come down from on high that get shifted and changed, changed like having homosexual pastors and, you know, the issues you know, that, that are starting to come down through the church structure. And then this pastor, I talked to a pastor recently, I said, you have a decision on your hands because the denomination is putting pressure on him to support homosexual pastors. And I said, well, where do you stand on this issue? Well, he told me, and it's where I stand. So I said, are you going to make your stand? He said, I can't. He said, my wife is sick. I need the insurance, and I need my retirement. I cannot make that stand. That is evidence of exactly what I'm trying to tell you. We're making decisions based on our wallet instead of the decisions on the conviction and the immovable doctrines of God. That's what's happening. It always comes back to money. That's why God came into the temple through the form of Jesus Christ and he grabbed a hold of the edge of that, that table where all the money changers were. What was on that table? CDs. DVDs. 
books from the pastor. Making money on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he grabbed a hold of that, the corner of that table and he flips it in the air. But today, I promise you, Pastor, wherever you're at, I don't care what country you're in, you would be considered beyond a radical if you flipped over the tables of the CD sellers in your entryway. That's why we do everything donation-based, and even with that, we usually give it away free, is because I think that's the point. I had another leader, and I, he's probably listening because he's an active podcast listener. He is a uh, wonderful theologian out on the East Coast. I love you and I admire you a lot. And we had a very interesting discussion about when do we quit in our nonprofits because of the funding problem that's happening in America with para ministry uh, organizations. He has probably one of the most stable doctrinally sound organizations in the nation and he is questioning whether he should shut his doors. Why? Because his individual support is down and it's staying down. And I said, I hate to say it, but you need to have a little wake-up call. It's not going to get better. You are just going to gather a faithful few around you that are really going to care about the message that you believe needs to get out to the people. So yes, you could be taken care of properly. But that's what it usually seems to come back to, is the issue of money. So now we need to take a look at how we do this discipleship process. So here we go. You have the primary discipler, which is the exchange life teacher, whoever that is. It's usually the oldest upline, if you want to use that terminology, teacher that is alive today. Everyone, everyone has one. That person is spending one-on-one -on -one time with the first generation uh, disciple. And the key is, is that the exchange life worker is equipping that first generation person, not just with the freedom and the truths that come with being not I but Christ, but showing them how to give it away to someone else. So as I have said, uh, using DK as an example, I was kind of hoping that uh, our uh, guests were going to be here today because it is a classic example of the three generations that I'm giving you this morning. But as I pour my life into one person, usually before the fifth session I say you need to find someone to have coffee with and whatever it is that I'm giving you in this one-on-one, -on -one, you need to give to someone else and have that someone else committed to meeting with you on a weekly basis for the next 10 to 15 years. You need to continue to give your life away to one person for sure. Now you can have a hundred if you want, but one for sure. 
one by one is enough. Because every once in a while you're going to hit a one by one that's going to literally go ballistic with multiplying the gospel. Now, that one person is taking what God is leading in the scriptures and what is happening between those first two and taking it and equipping the second generation. So this first generation person is experiencing the fruit of that, that discipler. It's what we just read in the scriptures. Imitate their faith. These are not standards of recommendation. This is standards of function, of authority. This fruit is to be experienced here as a blessing. This person here in number two, second generation disciple as a discipler, is experiencing the fruit of the first generation. And they're learning how to pass this on to someone they're going to have coffee with. So, and I have literally watched this with my own eyes and the hearing of my own ears with DK. He would literally go and set up, you need to meet with me, whoever this person is, and we need to discuss blah, blah, blah. And he starts in party. You need to start talking to someone. For me... I have four generations going at one time. Do you see this? So whatever it is I tell DK on a one-on-one, -on -one, I know that it is going to go to Joe. And I, I know Joe's going to take it to Marcus. Whether they listen, that's not my, my deal. That's God's deal. So what's coming out of my mouth I know is affecting four generations immediately. Mine, the first, the second, and the third. And then pretty soon this person is talking about going out and changing the world. I, I think I remember correctly that that's how this got in this room today. But if you brought those men forward today and stood them in the church community today, they're going to be labeled horrid things. Because they stayed with a system that God gave them that was truly going to multiply for generations. Why are we seeing the church failing in discipleship? It's because of this issue. Anyone who is strong and immovable about the authority structure of discipleship is considered an oddball. You think some of the leaders today are getting labeled with bad labels. Stand Paul up here on an average Sunday morning. Death is sure to follow by our own people. And that is certainly the craziness of where the church has gone. So the goal is same with the fruit of the tree, produce fruit in order for others to pick from the branches. I believe that's what fruit trees are for. 
to allow others to enjoy the fruit of righteousness. So my goal is to bear fruit so that DK can come along and pick the fruit, eat the fruit, so he's bearing fruit, so the next person come along picking the fruit, eating the fruit, so they can bear the fruit. And whose fruit is it really? It's the indwelling life of Jesus Christ. Has nothing to do with Paul, has nothing to do with Finney, has nothing to do with you. But here's what happens. Christ discipling through the primary discipler is influencing, training, and equipping that first generation person to do Christ discipling through that disciple But what happens is when you get them started in that process, fears start to surface. Fear's the number one thing that Satan uses to stop ministry. So the fear of being inadequate or they're incompetent or they, they are afraid of people or they're afraid to give their testimony. They're afraid, they're afraid, they're afraid. And the biggest thing that most new disciples are afraid of is failing. So what happens is this second generation disciple suffers. They're starving. God set the system up in place to keep everyone fed because the person who feeds you is where you come back to for your shirts, where you come back to for your shoes, where you come back to for equipping. So God sets this up in the spiritual world. That numbers two generation is waiting to be fed. And because of your own phobias and distractions and rebel procrastination, the third or the second generation is starving. What do they do? They have to run off to their bedrooms, open up their Bibles and disciple themselves. The number one way that Satan has destroyed the church. Disciple yourself. It's called devotions. That is not how we are designed by God. Yes, you can have your private time with God, but the goal is to be equipped and trained and molded through the body of Jesus Christ. So this is what it's supposed to look like. We have Christ through the Holy Spirit, which is the primary to disciple that first generation, the second generation, and so, and so forth. The primary discipler is just kind of stepping back so that the first generation discipler can be released. And so the primary discipler slowly but for surely becomes in the background and is available. It's kind of like having a father. The father is not necessarily in the primary front of your life anymore, but they're always there, ready, available to encourage you as a child. No matter what your age is, that's the way this is supposed to work. 
Paul himself was a bit overqualified when Christ blew him off his horse on that day of his conversion. God had to assign a messenger of Satan. That is a quote, unquote. God had to assign a messenger of Satan, a demon, to sand off those areas of self-confidence. In fact, once Paul got tired of fighting this weakness, he appealed to God that it might part for him and he did that three times. Not only did that not only did God leave it this thorn in his flesh, not only did God leave it in place, he made it clear to Paul that it was there to make him weak and that it would be most prudent of him to make use of this weakness to the point of being well content. Paul not only got it, he decided to start bragging about his weakness instead of fighting it. Someone please tell me what Paul's number one weakness that the scriptures kept revealing to us letter after letter after letter. Huh? Boasting, bragging. Please stay with me on this because if you get this little peace, you will literally be holding the golden key to discipleship. This is where it starts. This was Paul's great aha moment. Boasting is arrogance. Arrogance is pride. We know what the Hebrew definition of pride is. We know what the Greek definition and the Hebrew definition of humility is little less than human. Paul's worst weakness was bragging, 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 bragging. He even said, I boast the most among you. It's a sin. No, it isn't. Boasting is nowhere close to being a sin. What you're boasting about is what can be sin. Paul finally got it. His very boasting is about who strength is being boasted. God did not ask Paul to get rid of his boasting. God asked Paul to consider it grace being sufficient enough because through that weakness of his boasting, his strength will be known. Christ in you. So here's what we have. Christ laid it out there and Paul took his weakness and said, well then I just would rather boast about my infirmities. And he started boasting about his weakness. Not fighting it, not going and getting treatment, not shoving drugs at it. He just simply embraced it. Thus embracing the author and perfecter of his faith. The embrace of weakness is what opens the door to the embrace of the author. 91 years after Jesus Christ was crucified, if you have a red letter edition, you're going to find something very unusual in this passage. 
My grace is for, sufficient for you, Paul, for my power is perfected in your weakness. It's in red letters. He didn't have a six-hour therapy session with Paul. He just simply said it. Bam! You either accept this or you don't. And Christ moved on. There's no more red letters in that book. Simple. Golden key. So you're trying to tell me that I am supposed to be well content with insults, persecutions, distresses, with difficulties? Yes. I am. I believe that everything in Paul's life finally came together. Because I cannot think of a single occupation. I cannot think of a single sin that does not war with trying to be stronger. Trying to have a cleaner house. Trying to have a cleaner community. Trying to have, trying to have, trying to... Everything seems to be based on rubbing it in the face of this passage. It's the golden key to start discipleship of Christ in you, of embracing the author is through embracing your weaknesses and then bragging about them. We want to thank you for listening in on our podcast today. This message comes to you by way of a podcast feed from Heartland Family Fellowship, a family integrated church, which is an outreach of IOM America, right here in Sterling, Kansas. For more information about our church or international ministry, log on to www.iomamerica.org. And if you would like to connect to our fellowship, log on to www.heartlandfellowships.org. It's our prayer that the mind of Christ in you draws you into a deeper walk with Him.